0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, everybody. Welcome to New Books in History, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. My name is Dan Moran. I am thrilled to be here today with James Raven, editor of the Oxford Illustrated History of the Book, published in paperback in late 2022 by Oxford University Press. James is a fellow of Magdalen College at the University of Cambridge, a fellow of the British Academy, and professor emeritus of modern history at the University of Essex. Welcome, James. Welcome, James.
2: Thank you very much. It's wonderful to be here.
1: So this is a beautiful book, which we will talk about in a few moments, but I want to get to your biography a little bit. I mentioned that before. In addition to your your teaching CV, you've also published many books and scholarly pieces about the history of the book. And I just have to ask, going into this, how did that subject grab you?
2: that's a good question i mean as you say it's kind of you to mention the books but um i started off as a straightforward historian really in many ways i was very interested in how we reclaim the history of of peoples in the past and was working originally on 18th century topics about the coming of the modern world and the way in which we can think about uh, new ideas circulating in the age of uh, the enlightenment whole ideas of rationality and new scientific ideas and ideas about wealth creation really the the what many people see, particularly in the United States, is this uh, extraordinarily foundational century. And I was concerned with the issue about, well, if people were producing all these ideas, how did they get out there and how were they received? And of course, the main medium for that in terms of communication was the book. And we can look at the book in a, a very straightforward way and read books now and say, oh, these are the ideas that were promulgated. But how do we know how they were actually produced? And in many cases, of course, you've got to have a patron or you've got to have a commercial market, you've got to be able to finance the publication of those books. So I was interested in how they were produced. And then I began to think, well, actually, the book itself was in many different forms. You know, we think now of the printed form, the the, what's really a, a codex, a printed book, a volume with a spine and so forth. But then there was pamphlets. And in the 18th century, particularly, this becomes the age of the newspaper, different sorts of forms of books. And then Going on from that, we got the production side. I was looking at the circulation of books and then was fascinated by the receptions. How do we know how a book was received? How do we know how, how many people read it? But not just how many people read it and who read it, but how they read it.
1: Yeah, so it's also, a, it's a history of the book, but your, this collection is also a history of reading.
2: It's a, re- a history of communication and a history yes. of reading and a history of reception. What, so, what effect different types of books had on the world.
1: Yes, you're right. Books make history and history makes books, right?
2: Precisely, yeah.
1: <laughs> so this book, which I must say, it's a beautiful book. It's a beautiful, it's got great illustrations. It's a perfect combination of scholarship at a coffee table book. Um, and it's this collection of essays that examine different eras and places in the history of the book. So we get the ancient world, we get Byzantium, the Enlightenment, as you said, we get modern China, we get the digital world. So I imagine that you writing an introduction to these 16 essays it must have been somewhat of a challenge, right? But I love the very first thing you say in your introduction, and I want to get your reaction to it. You say this quote: "We probably think we know what we mean by a book." So can you talk about that? I love that. Well, we probably think we know. Yeah, exactly.
2: And I think when I started thinking, I thought I knew what, we, what I meant by a book. Uh, we're all, in a way, prisoners of our own special areas. You know, we th- we think we know about a particular. Object or a particular behavior or something, and when you when you brought all these scholars coming together from different parts of the world, as you say, and writing on so many different periods, um, r- really we're talking about five thousand years here of history, uh, and then suddenly this object that we think is a book, we think sort of instantly it's printed and it's on paper and it's bound and it's got covers, and then I suppose it's a generational thing, isn't it, amongst us? If I was to talk to my teenage sons, for example, they would possibly think yes it's a book it's printed but they'd also think about the book on their on their tablet on their on their on their phone or on their ipad or on their kindle and how you actually read it and i began to think well actually you know we use the word you scroll down you scroll down to read we've, we've moved a noun to a verb we think of what a scroll is a papyrus scroll and so forth and so this whole thing about what a book is suddenly took on a whole different life in terms of its many different material forms over those 5,000 years and all around the world. So, you know, to give you a snapshot of it, you know, we we sort of start with... um, uh, clay tablets. You could almost think of it as a history of going from clay tablets, three, you know, uh, three thousand BC, to modern electronic tablets, uh, two thousand eighty. Um, so we've got these tablets. They're in clay. Uh, then we've got wooden wax tablets, papyrus scrolls in South Asia and East Asia. Leaf leaves are used in South America and Mesoamerica. We've got these wonderful keepers, which are strings. All these things can be books i know what you're going to ask me next you're going to say well how do i define a book <laughs> exactly. go ahead yeah because because once you start to think about that once you start to think about material forms you, you begin to think well where where does a book begin and end and right. my, my definition you have to be my definition is first of all it's obviously got to contain some form of writing or graphic image so it's got to have a, gra- a graphic uh, Means of production, and that means you're actually going to, going to have some form of um, graphic communicable script or image which can be written or it could be incised. I mean, it can be carved into something uh, or it can be printed or imprinted. There are different ways of doing that, but that moves on to the next thing. It's actually got to be able to be read, so it's got to be legible. So, you've got graphic communication, form of communication, it's got to be legible, and then it's got to be legible on some form of material. Form, and I think the key thing there, because otherwise you could start to say, well, what's the difference between a book and a wall painting or a monument? The key thing is, I think it's got to be portable. So a book is got to be, it's got to be graphic, it's got to be legible, and it's got to be portable. And you might add a fourth um, element to it, and that is. Um, which would be you know very dear to the heart of librarians and conservationists and um, and that is that it's actually got to be a bit durable it's got to it's got to be last it, it mustn't be too transient it mustn't sort of disappear now some books are very fragile some books are you know cheaply produced and not meant you know quick comic or something but not meant to um to last long but generally they're they're supposed to be able to last a bit between readers so you know it's it's graphic it's it's legible it's portable and it is to some extent durable. And that would then include all sorts of, you know, huge books, great big volumes, uh, newspapers, pamphlets. But it would also include what we might in the Western world think of as quite exotic, but not at all in other parts of the world. Uh, strings, shells, incised tortoise shells from ancient times, um, clay tablets, which were kept in libraries, you know, libraries of great clay tablets going back to Assyria, two and a half thousand BC. So a great range of material forms. But still, I would say that is the history of the book.
1: That's great, because the opening parts where you talk about that reminded me of how, you know, economists always have to say, what is money? And it's it seems like such a simple thing to define, but the more you press the definition, the more slippery it gets. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So let, let's move on to the ch- the chapter. We're going to go from the age world now to medieval Western Europe. So in that chapter, David Rundle, I thought this was terrific, tells a story about the Catholic Saint uh, Dominic de Guzman debating representatives of the Cathars, the heretical sect that the Catholic Church tried to destroy. And the scene is France. The year is 1207. And the judges decide they will test the truths of each side by throwing each side's book in the fire. Now, can you tell that story and what happened according to the winners of the debate?
2: Yeah, it's terrific, isn't it? And this is, of course, this is Saint Dominic, who you know founded the Dominicans, right. the Dominican Order. And we are now down. We're twelve oh seven, and we're down in this beautiful part of France, actually. I, I know it very well. I work work quite a lot there. Um, and this actually takes place in a little beautiful, still existing uh, hilltop town called fanjou And um, the Cathars, of course, who are these ascetic and uh, very, very interesting, and seen by the Catholic Church as uh, heretical and and very very dangerous group uh, in the southwest and elsewhere southwest of France um, come together in this in this in this sort of um, battle of wills really in Fanjou and um, the, the 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 Cathar books. Is, okay, we're going to we're going to test the the veracity of the two types of the of the Catholic Bible and of the of the Cathar writings. The Cathar books are put into a fire and they are immediately burnt and consumed by the fire. But as the legend goes, uh, the 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 Bible pops out of the, the Catholic Bible pops out of the fire and sends to the high, high rafters. And then it's put down again. And it, this happens three times. Um, and it, it's seen in the story, obviously, as you quite rightly say, Dan, uh, the, um, the, the story, the legend, of course, is written by, by the victorious side in this, in terms of the Catholic Church. Um, and of the, of the, 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 this is a miracle of who was to become Saint Dominic. But it also attests to this other aspect Uh, worldwide, actually, not just European, but worldwide, um, very much so, sense of the miraculous about the book. The extent to which the book, yeah, of course, books are there to be read. Books are there to, in so many world religions, to promote the word, the word of God. That itself has a very sacred aspect to how the book is constructed and how the book is read. We can think of that you know, in Islam and in other, in other religions, but it also there's a totemic and miraculous, inspirational aspect of the book as an object itself. Here we've got a you know a book levitating, a book flying up, giving off its miraculous properties. The Bible is victorious in this case. The 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 the, the, the Vulgate is victorious over these other heretical um, writings. But there are so many around the world sort of fascinating examples of the sort of worship of a book or a book that is seen to have these powers that are beyond, actually. I mean, this perhaps, you know, thinking about it, actually this is perhaps adds a bit my, to my definition because it's beyond the four things I've pointed out so far. It's actually, I don't think we'd we'd all think of this instantly. Well, we wouldn't actually think perhaps as a, a book, as a, a miracle worker or something very, but it has a, a certain potency, don't you think? You know, a potency yes, about how...
1: Yeah, David Rundle. He says he says it was an example of this idea that books can hold quote power beyond reason.
2: Very well, yeah. David's a great scholar. He puts it. He puts it. He puts it very, very well. Um, and you can think. I mean, there was some. There's a, there's a wonderful in in the book itself. There's a there's a, there's such beautiful illustrations in this book. Um, Oxford have done such a great job on it. There's a lovely. Um, Image of um, the uh, an 11th century psalter. It's now called St. Columbus' psalter, and that was taken into battle. So it was actually held against the body of the individual as a, as a, as a you know, almost a talisman, as a protection, a holy protection. So you've got this book to protect you. And there are all sorts of, in you mentioned earlier Byzantium, um, of particularly Byzantine priests being buried with their books, or at least others being the body of the deceased being touched by a book. And the touching and kissing and feeling of a book is. Actually, it's something that I've going on, I'm sort of writing at the moment really fascinating, the extent to which books it's, uh, books themselves are can be sensory objects you know obviously we think of 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 using sight to read and hearing we hear the book actually being 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 read, but actually there's something about touch, not just braille books for those visually impaired but but also the the actual touch and feel of a book, and also the smell of a book, you know, going to a library and the smell of a book and and the taste of a book. The issue of kissing books and so forth. So there's a whole sensory area here. And I think that uh, story of uh, the miraculous um, event in Fangio all those centuries ago and St. Dominic does make us think about books in a much broader historical sensory sort of way about what their role is.
1: Yeah, and we and that's some of that would you say that some of that has kind of trickled to our own lives because we are I'm looking at your office here you know you're surrounded by books we all <laughs> have books everywhere we have we, we all own more books than we could possibly get to but we can't resist getting rid of them but we, so we have books like that but we also have books that are very special to us like you know you, I still have my first copy of you know the, the life of Johnson or something and books that we would never ever give away or, or because it's just a, a, a you know, a cheap little paperback, but it's come to mean something to us beyond the words on the page.
2: Yeah, there's, gosh, there's so much that we could unpack. I mean, why do we buy books? People have different motives of buying books. Yeah. Um, we, 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 we know it's a bestseller or something. We want to read it because other people are reading it. We're excited. We know the content it's going to inform us or entertain us. And of course, that's obviously a, sometimes a great trope that we're, we're informed by entertaining that's why many people wrote the books and they hope that's going to be successful <laughs> but there's also something as a certain social pressure uh we, there are certain books where um you know we, we think we ought to have the book about time by Stephen Hawking on our coffee table <laughs> to show that we you know we don't actually understand a great deal of it nobody um, reads it which should be there and of course the number of times that many of us you know who who are historians working particularly on literary projects uh go into a great library um I know you're in New Jersey. I've worked in the Alexander Library. I remember going to the Alexander Library once in in Rutgers, which was a fantastic library to work in. And there in the rare books, there were examples as there were in in other libraries of uncut books. You ask for a book, you know, and it's actually found that it's, by uncut I meant in the way that it was actually printed, Um, they were often printed and then it was later that you actually have to cut the edges to actually open Mm. them up so that you can tell no one has actually read it before you have and then you have this dilemma of having to go up to the rare books librarian and say excuse me you know am i allowed to cut it with a knife or will you like to open it please for me and this sort of thing there's a there's a there's a there's a a lot there's a lot of what you're saying and it also goes back to the point about reading and and reception because yeah we all have our favorite books we buy these books and we don't want to get rid of them They're, they're on the shelf But, you know, it's not just the case that other people will read a book differently to the way we read it. So you've got this sort of community of readers out there who will look at a book and read it in a different way and then have, you know, through book clubs and other means, have a different form of discussion. But we ourselves will return to a favourite book and perhaps read it in a different way, won't you know, because we're we're older or we've got a different reason for reading it or we've learned something in the interval or we've forgotten something. (laughs) And so a book is a sort of, you know, it's going back to that magical property of a book in many ways about about what it means to us as as a as an item and what we can get out of it.
1: Yes. A, to read King Lear as a 14-year-old and as a 74-year-old is a wildly different experience.
2: <laughs> it's a very good example, yeah.
1: <laughs> so let's move on to the Renaissance and the Reformation. Now, you co-authored this chapter, and uh, naturally, of course, I was not surprised, you, you open up by talking about Gutenberg. And you quote a 1455 letter from Pope Pius II, in which he calls Gutenberg, quote, that marvelous man seen at Frankfurt. And you say near the end of the chapter that you say the social and geographical penetration of print in the era is astounding. Now, even people unfamiliar with the history of the book know about Gutenberg. But can you talk about your chapter and how you position Gutenberg in the era of the Reformation and how that, his press kind of dovetailed with this challenge to the Catholic Church? It seems like an unbelievable lining up of the historical planets and i was wondering if you could t- tell that story
2: yeah i mean it it is it's such an extraordinary period an extraordinary period of transformation so we here we are in 1450ish when gutenberg um who is a a, a very interesting man we we still know extraordinarily little really about uh-huh. how it all comes about but he is he's interested in the um I was going to say it's a bit like the tourist trade; it's the uh, pilgrim trade, really. And he starts to print uh, various things for um his little little things that, that 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 um can can absolve you from your sins if you if you show these little pieces of little pieces of paper, and from that moves on to actually printing the Bible. And we think, I mean, scholars there's a debate here, but scholars think it's an adaptation from a wine press, so it's a different technology. We have to be very careful here because we have to be very careful to remember that this is um. The printing of a Bible, the printing of something in Europe by movable type. Um, mm-hmm. That actually, the, the technology. There has been printing before by block printing, and in fact, there had been movable type printing in China going back many centuries, going back to about 1000 in our in our um, chronology, and block printing before that. So. Uh, in a global perspective, it's not an entirely new technology, but in Europe it is. And it is absolutely transformative. And as you rightly say, I mean, you can see this transformation in, in certainly in terms of the, the spread of printing by movable type through university towns and great cities of Europe so that you've got about 200 or so great centres within 50 years producing all these books. And by the end, by the end of the 16th century, by about 1600, um, you know, uh, there are there are printing presses in, in, in virtually every town across a uh, well-sized town uh, across Europe um, what it's doing yes it's it's um, in, in, in really um, as you say, contributing enormously to uh, the Reformation but also in terms of of uh, the availability of the Bible. In the vernacular, translation through Luther, of course, and others in in the in the vernacular, but also in terms of this the sheer replicability. I mean, the way in which it's, it's replicated the, uh, uh, the vast numbers of Bibles and religious books, transforming it and creating a convulsive, you know, revolutionary um, period. Uh, in which the in which uh, the Catholic Church is increasingly concerned about the extent to which the word through the vernacular is is really uh, beyond their own control, and so you have something like uh, you know the first great um, censor. Sort of, um, um, uh, uh, Instigation of, of censorship through the the papal index in 1555 to actually condemn books and ban books, and a com- and and con- and concern on the on the part of not just church authorities but state authorities about who's reading and why they're reading just because of the extraordinary volume of print that is available. Some of it in terms of great Bibles in 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 vernacular languages, um, but also in terms of other types of of print spreading new and seen perhaps heretical views. Um, And although, you know, we we have to be careful here, cautious in terms of literacy rates that, you know, the majority of people in Europe cannot um, read or write letters. Of course, it's not just through reading, as we were saying, in terms of the sensory experience of the book. Uh, amongst those that can read it, you've got a large audience of people of listeners. And so its effect can be, you know, can be revolutionary. And then, you know, just just briefly, beyond in the, in the sort of more, more sort of secular world as well, uh, an extraordinary scientific revolution is going on, an intellectual revolution. People use the word, Republic of Letters, um, and it's worth it's worth I think thinking you know how that comes together and how that comes to be because so okay you you've got you've got um, uh, great scholarship of course um, uh, before the, the coming of printing through movable type uh, of the, the the exchange of ideas through manuscripts across uh, traveling across uh, lands but now you've got through this re- replicable printing of an edition you can have a um an individual a scholar or a, an interested individual say in i don't know in poznan or in brussels or in lisbon spread across europe i'm taking those towns at random mm-hmm. they can all be reading um the same edition of the same book because it's all been printed virtually. I we can argue about a little bit of things, but, but basically it's the same book. And you could write to somebody and say, turn to page 395, that passage by Erasmus or that passage uh, by somebody on the circulation of blood, by Harvey on the circulation of blood or something. And they can actually debate and discuss it in in a in a in a in a way which which it, it, because they're all actually having the same copy of the book as opposed to perhaps a, scri- a scribal manuscript which might be rather rather different. So it's yeah. it's not just the volume; it's also that the, the object. There's something use, people have used this term of of cultural fixity about it. We could debate about its effect, but that's the the essence of it. And it's an it's an extraordinary revolutionary period as a consequence of the invention of printing by movable type.
1: But it is, it is in it, for the short version of it, though, it is fair to say that Gutenberg did, you know, steer the Reformation or at least at least fuel the, f- fan the fires.
2: Yeah, well, he, he provided the tools whereby those okay. who were concerned, yeah, uh, about, um, who, who were concerned about the, the, the nature of the Catholic Church, uh, Luther and others, uh, yeah, he, he, he gave them the tools to do their job. Yeah, that, yeah. that, that would be a, a brief way of saying it. And, of course, it then inspired others um, working, I mean, what, person that's of great interest here for example there are many you could you could point to individuals uh, francis scarina is a very interesting example of someone who um moved around many of the the the, the early printers and scholars uh, moved around europe uh extraordinary uh, he he went from prague um uh well, he was born in current belarus through grand duchy of lithuania and through going down to prague and uh, produced the first bible in, in in printed in a cyrillic script so you know there was a sort of the, the the what Gutenberg was doing was he was introducing a a, a technology through the uh, creation of 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 letters which could be printed through movable type, which um, enabled uh, different different languages, different language forms um, to, uh, to 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 be um, for those to be I'm going to say popularized, but but the the the, the for, for books in those languages to have greater geographical and social penetration in those periods.
1: Right, because as you said, people could listen to them even if they couldn't read them.
2: Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Yeah.
1: So that whole description, of course, when you read it in the book, when I, when I was working my way through the book, it's it, you know it begs you to compare it to the internet, where there's going to be this you know this this you know saturation of information, and people are going to get nervous about it, and that moves us into Anne Blair's chapter called "Managing Information," which I thought was especially interesting. Right, and it's funny because we like to think of our own age as the information age. But I love how she points out that in the early modern period, there were already people complaining about the overabundance of books. We talked before about our offices, right? And she even quotes Erasmus grumbling that, I love this quote, swarms of new books distract readers away from true learning. And you know, the idea is that there's too much information out there that authors sought to capture in print. And, and I want to get your reaction to this. It seemed from her chapter that the, the eye-opening thing for me was that somebody's always complaining that people are reading the wrong books. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yes, exactly. Can I you talk know about that? I- <laughs> Yeah, and I, I expect that I expect that complaint could go back to ancient times as well. You know, we you think yeah. you know two thousand BC and these Babylonian um, tablets in their libraries. You know, back in the kingdom of Sennacherib and and in Assyria, where well, people thinking, well, you you know, this is a question of selection, isn't it? Which book is right. the most important? What do you read? Yeah, I mean Anne's chapter. Anne, of course, is um, professor at Harvard. Um, it's a wonderful chapter. And uh, I think there are probably—I mean, there's, there's there's two issues. One, I suppose, is the what is what is the complaint about here? One is what we would now call, I suppose, dumbing down, isn't it? That there's just too much yeah. out there, and it's actually dumbing down. And it's making us all a bit sloppy in our in our scholarship, in our reading, in our understanding, in our learning. You know, it's uh, headline stuff, and it's not um, it's not precise enough. So one is the issue that we've got this avalanche of books. Um, yeah, they all. Oh, Leibniz is another one who complains in the early right. seventeenth century. There's this avalanche avalanche of books and we we, we just it, it's it's just just too much and part of it is that it's this sort of dumbing down but the other thing about the avalanche is is how do you select the books that's the other problem That and there's this you, you, there's so much information coming through and you're, you're absolutely right dan you know that, that how it, the, the the parallel uh with the internet now is a good one how on earth do we know how to select our information and how do we know how to retrieve it now with the internet it's interesting um and modern sort of search facilities we've we've got you know you can sort of i don't know scroll down a text and and find something can't you can search for something in a new way and this is what we've I suppose we've got this this expression haven't we the search engine you know <laughs> so what is the what is the 17th century search engine you've got this avalanche of stuff some of which we know or some some people are claiming is rubbish and it's dumbing down and it's it's not it's not good how do you what is your search engine for finding the best that's out there. Now, there's there's two answers to that really. One is one is the the, 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 the sort of the macro, the bigger level, and that is, um, well, you you're going to sort of amass collections and uh, libraries, and you're going to have to have guides to those libraries and guides to what's produced. So you need catalogues and you need reviews. And by the end of the seventeenth century, you begin to have what we think of as reviews these days, philosophical transactions, periodicals. They're guides to good read. You know, they're guides. To, to, to readers who want to know what's best to, to write, to read, sorry. And the other thing at the micro level is once you've got your big book, you know, you've got your big volume, how do you search within the book to find what you want? And that is, and is fascinating. This is the coming of indexes, of indexing, yeah. and all the critical apparatus within a book that we're now familiar with. Notes, footnotes, things around the side, which had been there before, as again, going back to what we were saying about religious printing and, Luther, the Reformation, Calvin, and the rest. Um, what we've got here, and, and also fascinating things like the polyglot Bible, that is, Bibles produced in multiple languages. So you've got the ancient Greek, you've got the Greek, the Hebrew, the Syriac, um, and and the vernacular languages in parallel columns. The, the, the exquisite, I mean, looking now, they're, they're extraordinary workmen. The workmanship is amazing to look at. Them. They're very beautiful, the way in which you've got the layout of the pages, but you've got critical apparatus around it a bit like i suppose now when you're i don't know correcting you know we can use sometimes a sort of um, word processing package which you can put comment boxes and revise and and, and use them all the time yep. yeah, yeah it's, it's the 17th century equivalent and they're discovering and, and innovating i mean some of so there's some sort of things which go nowhere like we've had recently you know, certain technological things and they last for a few years and then we've forgotten them all about so there's there's stops and starts here um but it, it's the evolution of the index, the evolution of critical apparatus, the evolution of glossaries. And then in the broader term, the, the development of these guides to what's best out there. Uh, and at the same time, going back to what we were just saying a moment ago, um, continuing censorship and copyright debates as well about, you know, who who, who is going to be because Great deal of profit, often in this. Who is actually going to 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 profit from the this new world of publishing and this avalanche of books? Who is going to actually control what we would think of as now rights over publishing and rights over authors' own intellectual copyright? Yeah,
1: you just use the phrase. You know, the phrase you talked about parts of a book that we are you just said now familiar with, and I think what's great, like an index or a glossary, right? And what's great about that chapter and the whole collection is that. It, it shows you a time when you, when people were not familiar with that that we take an index or a glossary for granted. Um, when I was working my way through your book at one point, one of my one of my kids asked me what a word meant, and I said, well, "Look it up," and then it occurred to me that there was a time where you couldn't say "look it up." That that's a, that's a modern idea, right?
2: absolutely yeah and and the coming together I mean if you go ahead to the next century which is the you know in the 18th century and again the, the 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 in a way I mean the avalanche is continuing and of course the the production by the end of the 18th century is enormous compared to um the early part but somehow there isn't quite the panic that and d- described <laughs> in the 17th and that, that that's because in a way indexes have become more familiar catalogs have been more familiar there are tools around to somehow how moderate and control this the the panic is more about um the financial aspect who's actually profiting from it in many right. ways and the interesting thing going on to what you're saying about your you know think of the word is that you know this is the age of suppose, lots and lots of dictionaries the 18th century and dr johnson's famous dictionary 1755 um you've now got books um which go on in, in, in the interest in vernacular languages and such that that um grammar well, etiquette and behaviour, but also grammar and words themselves are being created, standardised. Language itself is being standardised. French, English, um, the difference between Norwegian and Danish. I'm working on that moment. It's an sort of interesting area. Um, people are actually collecting words and they're putting them into print. And there are books about some of the very first interesting dictionaries and grammar books are evolving in the 18th century. So, you know, your example to your children about word is, is very, yeah, it's, it's, it's a very interesting issue. Through history, actually, in relation to the production
1: of books, and to push that a little further, what's interesting about it, at least to me, and I'm sure to you, is that we take these things for granted and think that these innovations are intuitive, but they're not.
2: No, exactly, and I think we also have to ho- hold ourselves a moment and think. Well, you know, for example, all the changes we've talked about so far, at least in Europe, from from the invention, the the coming of movable type in 1450, through to 1800. All that revolutionary period of the Reformation, the Renaissance and the the extraordinary changes of deluge of information in the 17th century and the increasing amount of of publication, the age of newspapers and so forth in the 18th century, all of that comes about under the same technology. If um, Gutenberg in 1450 was to somehow land in Western Europe or uh, the um, early uh, United States in 1800, he would see, they basically a few little changes, but he would basically see see the same wooden press that he was familiar with still producing stuff. There'd been innovations in um, engraving and production production of images through a different type of rolling press, but the great, I mean, the great um, change, the great technological change, comes with the great steam presses and the first iron presses of the nineteenth century. But from fourteen fifty to eighteen ten, roughly, a bit later. Um, it's the same basic technology uh, which has produced this extraordinary revolution of the book and of reading.
0: I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready to eat meals. Every fresh, never frozen meal is chef crafted, dietitian approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two minute meals. That's shipstation.com with the code POD.
1: Yeah, and of reading as well. So let's 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 shift a little bit and go on to the Islamic world because there's a chapter in there that, that I learned a lot from Sheila S. Blair and Jonathan F. Bloom. And Bloom, they trace the ways in which books have been central to Islamic culture, and they talk about the the light of the Quran, how that changed over time, and how it moved to paper in some places faster than other places. And they make this interesting point that initially there was some resistance to the printing of the Quran, right? And they say that um, the esteem, this is their quote, the esteem given to handwritten books in the Islamic lands was one of the reasons that Muslims were relatively slow to adopt printed books. So I thought this was interesting, the contrast from, from the chapter on Gutenberg, this idea that you know mass printed books may not be the be all and end all. That might not be the ultimate, you know, so to speak, goal for a book. Now, today we talk about, have you been published? <laughs> what Have you been published? But it, there might be things more important than being published. So can you talk a little bit about how the history of the the, the islamic book is different from maybe the history of other books
2: yeah, you are right and i mean it's one of many contrasts in 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 this 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 book that i've edited as a, as, a, as a whole that we do have to stop and think well you know we take what's happening with the with printing in europe and and what we think of as as the, as the west Uh, For granted, whereas there's a very different sort of psychology going on, different materials and a whole different form of motivation to the book. And the Islamic world is is a wonderful example of that. This vast world, of course, and we're talking about many, many different parts of the world here over the over the over the centuries. um, In which fundamentally the Quran and the and and the word of the prophet is is itself such a such a, a holy thing that the actual art of transcribing the word itself becomes such an extraordinary, precious act that the calligraphy involved is very special. Um, and you say it's the, what what what's written on the penmanship, the type of pen that's used, the type of material from parchment to paper, um, the importance of the of the quality of it, and of course the different technique, as, as you know from the, in the development of the Arabic of uh, different types of Arabic script, re- reading in a different way from 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 right to left, creates a different sort of codex as well and a different sort of of, of parchment. But it's also the way in which um, the, the the word itself the holy word um is seen to be so important in a in, in the form in which it appears in the page and the care and attention to it that there is as you say this resistance to printing really really right across um uh the arabic world and what i mean of course you have development of of um uh, 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 sorry, Islamic world. Um, the, the, the development of of uh, of other is- Islamic books than than the Quran, but uh, but there's also this this still there's a resistance to printing, and printing is really quite late. You know, there's a there's a Quran printed in in, in Venice, 16th century, but it's really in the 18th century that the first um, more successful printing of the Quran takes place. Really, really quite a late, and that's just because um, of the uh, the, the the care and the, the the value that's placed on the on the manuscript on the manuscript qurans uh, and the ability also through um centers of uh what we would think of in the west as scriptoria to actually produce them as well uh and and you know there's there's i mean if i if i gave another a, a different just a, a different sort of example actually which goes moves us also <laughs> this time uh, even more broadly, in other parts of the world, um in in South Asia and uh, southeast Southeast Asia, where printing xylography printing with wooden blocks is is continuing. um it's another, moment when we actually have to think, well, a bit like the Islamic world, we have to think of a, a different type of book. The Islamic world is very, very successful in spreading the world <clears throat> through this, these extraordinary books, it's a wonderful calligraphy for recitation and the effect upon a hard, large number of, 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 of individual readers. But in the, in the South, Southeast Asia and South Asia, the technology of the woodblock is sometimes actually more efficient as a form of printing than the movable type in Europe what what i perhaps i didn't go into enough detail in a way that but but for those that 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 don't appreciate or don't know about this what what gutenberg is doing is producing movable type the the idea is movable little pieces of type individually cast letters i suppose for a younger generation brought up on you know (laughs) the internet we, we don't remember hot letter printing or whatever it was of all these little individual pieces of type individual letters and they're all put together to form to form the word they're composed they they then they then then they they're, they're, they're printed but once you've printed an edition an edition is quite a costly thing to produce labor costs printing costs um, and the cost of the paper you can't afford to print too many books you don't know what the market's going to be like you don't want to be left with a great stack of unsold books and so you print relatively small editions using these, this movable type Again, this is the same technology for several hundred years. And once you've finished that printing, you break up all the, all the letters again. They're like they call it a, a printer's pie. You've got great pies. the apprentices would all go out and young young people would, 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 would then put the, put the little letters back to all the A's were together and the B's were together and the C's were together. And that's actually incredibly inefficient. So we have this idea of you know progress, the West is doing well, movable printing by movable type. Whereas in the East, um, the continuation not of movable type, but printing by incised wood blocks. That is, the block is just carved by in, incising, and you store these. Again, in this book, there's a wonderful picture of where the wonderful image of where the um the the great libraries of the wood blocks. You can you can reprint by these incised wood blocks, um, time and time again, and keep them for several hundred years. And uh, you know, there's pros and cons of both systems. But rather, like the Islamic world, we do have to think of the. We, we mustn't assume the the sort of an innate superiority of um, Western uh, Christian society uh, societies and the and the books that they produce, as opposed to the different technologies and the different materials and the different successes that there are in the Islamic world, or in the Chinese, the Korean world, or indeed even in um, Early technologies in Mexico and south america which we haven't talked about so you know there's a there's a one of the things about this book is that um, there's a, a great deal of, of 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 a check to a sort of sense of innate superiority about one form of the book that we might take for granted
1: that's, yeah and what you just said about about um the time it takes for the printer for the printer's pie to be it that's that's wholly counterintuitive because you would think that Gutenberg comes along and bam, here comes it's like it, it's like the invention of, of the internet, like we said before. And that's a very that, that's one great thing about the book is it's a very counterintuitive idea to say, well, actually, these woodblocks are much more efficient in many, many ways. And you're holding the book, say like what? Like I was taught that Gutenberg, that was it. You, you know, Johannes Gutenberg changes the world. And and the the part you just said about the Quran, the the counterintuitive idea from there is that we live in a world, at least here where you know print makes something you know quote-unquote legitimate Where are having your ideas in print elevates them but that chapter on on the calligraphy suggests well actually you know that's not always the case and that print can actually cheapen things and make it less special
2: yeah, absolutely i could give you another example one of the things which and and one overlooks in terms of the coming of printing, say in in, in the West, the printing, is that uh, printing is not always printing of books. I'm going slightly off the book here, but um, uh, you 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 know, printing is used for what you call jobbing printing. That is for the forms of certificates, marriage certificates, or, or, or legal 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 um, documents, uh, all sorts of certification. You can think of them of warrants and so forth, and they're often called blanks. The printing of blanks. Why are they called printing of printing of blanks they're called the printing of blanks because they are forms you know they're produced in their hundreds and they leave blanks for for you to fill in and of course they're filled in by pen so what you're thinking of is the coming together of two technologies of printing and script and penmanship yeah and and it's only and then you have to ask well okay so um to use what you were just saying then about you know what gives it greater authority that's why it came into my head you know what ultimately what gives the printed form the authority is not the printing but it's your signature on it or you're filling it in. It's the penmanship that actually ultimately makes it authoritative. Now, of course, that, that world is being overtaken i mean i'm right. sure you like me are often i'm always puzzled by this i get a document online and it says put your signature on it yes. and an electronic signature will do and i never quite i always shake my head about that i can't understand how that's actually authorized at all because i just i just type my name in you know on the keyboard yeah. apparently that does apparently that's fine um so we we are you know and that's another instance of how but you you know going back to the book itself rather than perhaps printed forms um that that uh, that 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 authority in the book is interesting because one of the most fascinating aspects going back to my uh, you know interest in how a book's actually received and read are looking as a historian at the very things which librarians and parents tell t- tell readers not to do which is when you scribble on a book right. so you've got all these different copies of books with things scribbled along the side so that through looking at at the marginalia as you might call it what's in the margin or what's sort of appended and amended you can perhaps get back to how um how a reader actually appreciated a particular book and sometimes in in an append correction to a book that's also giving a different form of authority to it particularly if you've got if you're working in a you know that this is a um that the the author was actually somebody who's who's learned or Even even the author of the book themselves, that emendation gives a different take on the book, too. So, you know, there's a fascinating interplay here of different technologies of 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 the pen of the of of of
1: printing and of the way we, we read those. And I love what you said about e- electronic signing because I thought of the same example. And it's funny that when we have to, when we sign things electronically with the pen, you know, it used to be, well, you signed it. That was the greatest authority was your signature, right? And you say we feel uneasy about signing things online. But it's also funny how the, it seems like the marriage of, of print and handwriting hasn't fully been consummated because on the computer, you'll get the fake little signature meant to look like an <laughs> actual signature. But of course, it's too perfect. It doesn't look real. So you could see that, that we're still trying to figure that out.
2: Uh, well, indeed, and of course there were, there are some wonderful uh, uh, historical examples here of, of this. I'm mean, one of my favourites is from the late 18th century. There's a wonderful man called the Reverend Doctor John Trussler. He he <laughs> he was he bought his he, he bought his doctorate in medicine. He paid for it, and as far as Reverend was concerned, he was a curate. He never actually became more than a curate, and he was thrown out of various parishes for drunkenness. But he took he took up publishing in London, and he published on both sides of a debate. He published. Uh, he published something uh, about forms of politeness and then uh, published against it and, and, and so on. And he was sort of notorious. But one of his most successful publications um, was he advertised that for, um, for, for uh, parish priests, if they wanted, uh, if they, they were having trouble writing sermons or too lazy to write a sermon, he would produce sermons for them. But he would produce the sermons in a type, um, a, a, a type of print which looked like handwriting. <laughs> so if anybody, if anybody in the church could sort of saw, uh, they wouldn't know it was a printed sermon. It would look as though the, as though the the vicar um, uh, or priest had actually written themselves. And he he offered to send them out in parcels. These sermons could be sent out from London uh, in brown paper parcels, so no one would know where they were coming from. And he made quite a lot out of his out
1: of his out of his his mock handwritten printed sermons. <laughs> that's, that's terrific. So somebody somebody was hustling right from the beginning. Um... <laughs> So there's so much to cover here, but we're going we're to jump ahead in the interest of time. So I want to move on to the chapter of industrialization. And that's where uh, Marie-Francois Cation um, talks about how late 18th and 19th century innovations kind of increased the production of books and also reduced their cost, right? So she shows that publishing, and this is her quote, had become a modern entrepreneurial capitalist business. Now, that's a that's a story with which a lot of us are familiar, but I wonder if you could talk about how this this boom, this industrialization of books, was good for the growing reading public, and how that helped the reading public, you know, get their hands on more books.
2: It's another period of transformation. I think you know we left the chronology there with the my point that um, Gutenberg would have been familiar in eighteen hundred with exactly the same technology, yeah. and for, through the eighteenth century, there'd all been all sorts of attempts to change the the manual wooden press. It takes two men. It's very slow. It takes two men to pull on this wooden press, and there's tremendous pressure exerted actually in the printing process. So you actually have to put these beams to hold, hold the the wooden press in place against the ceiling and the and the floor. He's got all, all, all stories actually of, of Benjamin Franklin, of course, who was an early printer. Um, his memoirs are fascinating on this, and and innovation is slow. But at last, in the early nineteenth century, um, first of all, by the invention of a, an iron press rather than a wooden press, at uh, to give it greater sort of strength, you can start to apply the new technology of steam to this. So you've got a steam driven presses for the first time. The the first, the, the most famous example is 1814. That's the real crossing of the Rubicon when the Times, the, 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 the newspaper, the Times of London is printed for the first time in 1814 um, by a steam Press, um, and this absolutely revolutionises the productivity of printing. So we're still we're still talking about movable type largely, um, but it's now in terms of the actual printing press itself, revolutionising the amount of printing that can be undertaken. And then through the nineteenth century, it's not just the um, application of a steam driven press, uh, but um, the actual production of paper. We haven't talked about. Too much, but actually, papermaking itself is transformed by the materials. Many people are always, of course, su- surprised by this, um, and again, it's again counterintuitive because to, <laughs> uh, many, many of the many older books <clears throat> are much more durable than modern books because up until the early nineteenth century. I often have to correct students on this. I say, you know, what's a book made of, and what's paper made of, and they say, oh, it's it's wood chip. Well, no, in the, in the up until the 19th century, it's linen based. It's a collection of rags. Paper is made by rags, which makes it more adaptable to the climate and it's more durable. Through the 19th century, um, and through this new technology, uh, there's experiments with the use of straw and paper making. But then, in terms of wood and wood chip. And so papermaking itself through the use of wood, which actually, alas, in the long run, isn't as durable because it's a greater acidity. You've seen all those brown and, and crumbling books of the 19th century, early 20th century. They don't last as long as some of the older books. But in terms of the production of books, this new technology, stream-driven technology and the new technology of papermaking transform things. But then also in terms of the setting of type so that although there's still little bits of type, they can be... Um, put together by machine rather than by hand and a form a new form also called lithography which uses um acids to incise um create uh, uh uh the 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 text in printing and then towards the end of the 19th century through photographic means as well so in other words there's a there's a, a huge revolution going on in 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 printing rooms which hugely increases um the volume of books and newsprint and newspapers, transforms the format as well so that you've got lots of smaller books for the first time that can be produced really very quickly, transforms the newspaper and periodical world. Um, But it also means that the production can not only be greater, but also faster. And then you can get feedback from your readers, too. So, you know, famous examples. You know, oh, gosh, we could choose lots of examples. I suppose one of the most famous examples is, is of Charles Dickens in the middle of the 19th yeah. century, uh, now producing his novels, you know, in part issues. They come out every month or so. And then in the, in a couple of, of um, famous examples, actually overhearing, uh the reaction in bookshops from his readers and changing the plot because you think oh oh dear something's gone wrong i think it's martin chuzzlewit he sends martin chuzzlewit to to the united states to in in to um to to make the um to to make the narrative more lively because people aren't aren't very happy with it he's overheard so you get this this feedback much more quickly as well so that it's it's yes of course it's the transformative volume far, far many books than there were before, Um, and new forms in which people can read them, the development of the public libraries too, uh, of book clubs, of working men's clubs, and a greater social penetration of print, a huge increase in literacy rates from the early 18th to the early, sorry, from the early 19th century to the end of the 19th century. Um, But it's also a a, a changing um, speed at which people are actually being able to get through books and create a what we think of now. Um, should we call it literary culture? Yeah, it's a different type of literary culture, uh, driven by changing technologies.
1: Now, these changing technologies were great for what we might call "quote unquote" the common reader, right? For people who wanted to read Martin Chuzzlewit or, or you know to 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 kind of like find this life of the mind, but. There was also I've read elsewhere, and I want to get your comments on this. There was also this sense of nervousness among some people that it was happening too quickly. That, like we said before about Erasmus, the wrong books would fall into regular. We have to protect people from reading certain things, and it was almost it reminded me of like um you know the arrival of rock and roll or you know when the Beatles burst on the scene. Like there's something like that going on, isn't there?
2: Well. Moral panic is never far from us, is it? I mean, every, every, every generation, we have moral panic at the moment. You know, there's moral panic in one form or another, right. uh, and so yeah, the nineteenth century just takes on a different sort of form of it. You know, uh, I don't know what could we point. You could, you could, you could point to this. this there's a there's a religious census. I think it's eighteen. I think it's eighteen forty one um, when a, a shockingly low proportion of people are seen to to go to church on on on, on Easter Sunday and, and you know goodness everyone is, is writing about this um the proportion is astonishingly high compared at least in Britain um to what it is you know now um uh, and the same goes for the type of material which is released from the from from the presses spreading um d- d- you know uh unauthorized and problematic content, whether it's, you know, Charles Darwin and the origin of species, or towards the end of the 19th century, um, books which are seen pernicious in terms of their political ideas as much as their social ideas. Uh, And the, the extent to which you can actually control that um, uh, control that, in, at least in the West, largely by legal means, in terms of what's uh, blasphemous or seditious or treasonable. Uh, yeah.
1: So moving moving ahead, the chat the collection ends with a chapter by Jeffrey T. Schnapp called "Books Transformed," and this reminded me, you know, reading this chapter was like watching two thousand and one A Space Odyssey for the first time. I mean, it, it was it was far out in the in the best ways. And I I loved it because he summarizes the collection well by saying this, and I want to get your reaction to this quotation. He says, books have been seen as, quote, too available or unavailable, too controlled or uncontrolled, too large or too small, too cheap or luxurious, and that every single time we've seen people talk about the, quote, end of the book, he says, quote, on every such occasion, the book has given birth to new kinds of books. So, so, what do you make of that? What are some of these new kinds of books? What's on the horizon at this at the, well, you know, the end of the two thousand and one kind of a space odyssey history of the book?
2: Well, first of all, is that is I agree, isn't that a great sort of summation, great summary of yes, actually yes, everything yes. we've just been talking about in this in this in the, in this interview, um, all those different facets of the history of the book coming together and it's always very difficult to sort of predict what's coming next because some things you think that are going to last for a long while are suddenly overtaken by a different form of technology. Um Geoffrey actually uses a in very interesting word in that in that in that chapter. He talks about the skeuomorphic. I have to say that was a yeah. new until he wrote that it was a new it was a new word for me what the skeuomorphic was and what he means by that is the the continuation of a form a material form or a form that's actually in itself redundant doesn't it doesn't need to be in that form but because we're familiar with it or we feel we need it for comfort or something it continues it's and the, the signature on the
1: electronic i'm sorry it's the signature on the electronic uh when you sign something on a website that's a oh, more- exactly
2: yeah. yeah that is and the other the, the, the broader one is actually you know the page because you know in trying to project where we're going with the future of books you know to what extent are we really going to continue to have a page. we we often seen, you know, my students here, probably, possibly, I'm not sure, I haven't really asked them whether they read more books online than they actually read books, you know, from a shelf in the library. But the books that they're reading online are digitised books. They're digitised, they're old books which have been digitised, and they're digitised in the form of a page. So they're still reading a page. And books which come, which which we, we use this word digitally born, you know, a digitally born book, which is actually produced for the first time, in digital form it hasn't had another life in terms of a paper or parchment paper book or whatever it still takes a, a, a relatively what would what be seen as skeuomorphic or conventional form of of a number of pages you know it goes down and, and you, you sort of set your machine don't you do you want to do what you want to do it in a four or change your format and then we and the other thing of course within that and this is this is you know asking for, for predictions in the future, is to look to a much greater fluidity of the form and the way that people read. Um, the, 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 if, if we we haven't actually talked about the book very much from this perspective, but if we take, take the, the perspective from the from the, the vantage point of the author, then we're in a different sort of world because there's so much now self-publishing going on. There's always been self-publishing. If you were rich enough in the past to afford it, you would you would be the patron. You would finance your book. Uh, but, but largely, very largely, until recently, um, you know, you've got to find um, a publisher, an agent, and they've got to be prepared to finance the book. Now we're actually seeing much more self-publishing. So the form is changing and the means by which you can actually get a book out there uh, is changing as well right across the world uh, and you know we could talk uh, we could talk at length about globalization as well but the interaction between um, different cultures different parts of the world in this you know what Marshall McLuhan called global electronic village is actually it's also itself coming towards us in terms of the projection what the what the future what future is so you know I don't know what the answer is um I I don't know what the answer to your question is but it's it's certainly going to be of much greater fluidity it's going to be one of um increasing changes in technologies it's going to be increasing I think generational differences and no doubt um, that will instill even greater moral panic on some parts about control, as there is at the moment, control over the book, um, about not just in terms of the volume, but also how do we control what people, how do we know what people are reading yeah. and what is really the effect of, of, of book reading in, in right across the globe? Yeah.
1: You've used the word transfer. Uh, you know, a transformative age a couple times in this conversation. And it struck me when what you just said of how we're kind of in that as well with the skeuomorphic things. Like, for example, like, you know, I know that Apple spent a lot of time and money to get the illusion of turning a page right on the iPad to make it look like you're actually so that's there is no page, of course, but it, it, we're comforted by that. And then sometimes I'll look on, on Google. If you just use a simple Google Doc, it'll say, do you want to make this page list? And it's so funny that someone of my age, uh, it, it rubbed me the wrong way. And I was like, no, there's there's a page three, a page four, a page five. But it seems like we're in this time where people are saying, well, there's no such thing as a page. You don't have to have a page. That's that's, And we're kind of like, it, we have a foot on both worlds, so to speak. And it's the interplay between different types of, of medium, isn't it? There are right. different types
2: of yeah. media. Uh, you know, you, it, it, it as, as a historian, uh, much as I, you know, focus on writing about books we've always got to think about the interaction between books and other forms of communication so you know the 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 age that we were just talking about in terms of the transformation in the 19th century through uh, the production of books was also an age of the telegraph and then ultimately the end of that of the cinema and then the coming of radio and television and film in the 20th century um and they are they are interacting with the book as a form, either directly through, you know, the book of the film, <laughs> but okay. also uh, in terms of how you're reading a book in relation to your, to your action to other forms uh, 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 of media. And, and that's going to be true, even more true. I, I look Again, I, I, I look at my children and, and see how their reading of a book is... Um, also informed or mediated um, by the way in which they're actually using the computer in a different way, or they're they're not perhaps listening to radio in the way that we would listen to. they they've got a different form right. of um, being able to download podcasts, download different right. you know audios, audio stuff. whole you know what is the audio book? Where's the audio book going? Um, the audio book is is itself been transformed in recent in recent years from something that was static to something which is much more malleable and interactive so the interactivity is is going there so i mean you're right you know you you're talking about space odyssey jeffrey's jeffrey's chapter that opens up this 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 idea of a of a ever of a future of extraordinary interactivity between med- media forms as well yes. right
1: which which is which is exciting and a little off-putting
2: well, it, it may be off-putting to, to, to someone of, like myself of a certain age. I think it's exciting. <laughs> it's exciting. It is exciting. It is exciting, yeah. yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> so let's, let's go let's, – last question. Let's go back to your introduction. And, and in that introduction, you nod to the, the renowned book historian D.F. McKenzie. 1992, D.F. McKenzie predicts that, quote, the book and its history will become something more than the history of books. Now we've talked about that that kind of idea a lot on the margins of this conversation, but let's end with this. You know, what has the, the quote unquote history of the book become? The history of the book
2: has become the history, I think, of communications. It's just exactly what we were talking right. about just now. There was, you know, when I began on this, which was sort of 30, 40 years ago, Um, through the work of of Robert Dant and Don McKenzie, Rosh Hashati, all sorts of distinguished historians of books, there was a transformation in terms of thinking not just um, about the book in terms of the the history of bibliography and the the history of the book in terms of its textual importance, um, but also thinking more about the history of how it was produced and the effect that it had in society. People had always written about that, but somehow that was given a much greater uh, attention. And in in, in years, years the work of of others we've and what this conversation has largely been about we've attended much more to the form of the book in other parts of the world so these global comparisons have become hugely important in asking more you know really quite interesting and fundamental questions about what print meant what was its advantages but what also was its disadvantages where there were inefficiencies as much as efficiencies and that makes us think about in terms of what is the history of the book and how historians approach it, um, it, it thinks about constraints and checks as much as you know a, a sort of Whiggish idea of continuous progress. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it makes us it makes it makes us think about where where in the history of the book there were there were there were you know there were there were moments of pause and indeed we're talking about of of moral panic. But I think um, ultimately what it's doing also is it's it's thinking in terms of the material form of the book of its circulation and, its, and, as, and of its reception as a form of communication. And so the direct answer to your question is where is the history of the book going? It's going into broader ideas of how individuals around the world and at different periods of time communicated ideas effectively or sometimes disastrously <laughs> to other individuals. So the history of the book becomes, I think, the history of communications.
1: James Raven, it has been great talking to you today. The Oxford History of the Book is available wherever books are sold. Um, you can get a copy linked from the New Books Network website. It is an, it is a beautiful physical object, but it's also a great book to stimulate any, any reader who's lucky enough to get the, uh, a copy of it. I can't thank you enough for this conversation, James. Well, thank you. It's been enormously enjoyable. Thank you very much.